Welcome back to Unprecedential, an AEI podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. We're recording this in mid-August 2020, and needless to say, there's a lot of attention being paid to the upcoming election. And not just who might win, but how the election might proceed at all in an era of COVID-19 and social distancing. There are questions about mail-in voting, about the staffing of polls on election day, and all manner of other logistical questions on things we usually take for granted, but this year we can't. And so today, it's my great pleasure to be joined by John Fortier. He is Director of Governmental Studies at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and years ago was a research fellow here at the American Enterprise Institute, where he was the principal contributor to the AEI Brookings Election Reform Project. He also edited the most recent volume of a book that Walter Burns once edited titled After the People Vote. There's a new edition coming out, and we'll turn to that in just a little bit. But John, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. John, can you just give us a general sense of where we are in terms of the logistics, the planning for the upcoming presidential and congressional elections? Sure. I mean, we're, we're coming on, on to the time where people will begin voting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but where 30, 40 years ago, we might have thought of as election day as a single day. Really, we have extensive voting that, that occurs before election day. That's been true before the COVID crisis. It's been a building trend. I actually wrote a book back when I was at AI on absentee and early voting, and that trend you really picked up in the late 70s, 80s, 90s. But we expect we're going to see you know, even more people casting ballots earlier today. So the planning for it has gone on. The ability to change what we're doing is that window is shrinking. What I think we're going to see is in the last election, 2016, we saw close to 25% of people voting by mail. We saw a little less than 20% of people voting early in person. We're certainly going to see that number, that first number, go up dramatically. And it's going to pose some serious challenges for states that are doing it. As you know, America is a very decentralized country in terms of running elections. Some states are already doing extensive voting by mail, 100% voting by mail. Other states are very traditional and doing less. And the challenge for some of these states to move to that, I think it's going to be difficult, difficult for them to pull off, difficult for counting the vote after the election. And also, we shouldn't forget that the, the other parts of the election, the voting in person and early and on election day, are going to be impacted by COVID as well. Not only the challenges of voters showing up at polls, but the staffing of polls, the poll workers who are often elderly, not showing up, the sites that we have polling places, schools being a big one of them, maybe not being available. There are a number of challenges. And so I think election officials are doing well. We put some extra resources to it, but there are great challenges. And I I do have some worries about the, the chaos, especially after the election, the counting process, which if it's close really could be much more chaotic than it typically is. Let's start with the in-person voting, because right now in the debates in the media, there's mostly focus on mail-in voting. And I think there hasn't been quite as much debate surrounding the basic logistics of in-person voting. We sort of take for granted that we'll just go up to our our precinct at the local elementary school. We'll walk in and and the kindly retirees will hand us our ballots. We'll go and we'll vote. We'll get our sticker and we'll go home. And obviously, as you mentioned, that's going to be much more difficult, both because of the location and because of the people we count on. So you said states are, and localities are so far seem to be working on this. Could you just describe in a little more detail what sort of preparations they're taking, given the, the challenges they're going to face? Well, I think the two big ones are making sure that they have the people to staff the polls and making sure that they have the locations. Those are 
difficult enough challenges in normal times, but there are extreme challenges today. Also, just think about if we are practicing social distancing in, in all aspects of life, what that means at a polling place. It often means having the people who check you in sit further away from each other. The polling stations or booths or privacy screens maybe not being as close to each other. The line at the polling place being separated by more time. We've done some work on measuring lines at VPC, and you know, we do have some worries that the resources that you need for a typical election are not adequate just because of all of those physical factors, personnel factors, and voters themselves. There are certainly issues that could come up with voters. Voters not wanting to wear masks or thinking they should wear masks and the ability of poll workers to deal with you know, voters who are having issues and problems. There are ways of dealing with them. There are things like provisional ballots, which people can get if there are problems there, but they often take longer. They cause more of a delay after the election. And so we've got professionalism out there. We've got a lot of people thinking about it. We've got some more resources put to it, but it is a challenge. We've had a few challenging elections already just in the last few months. There was the elections a few months ago in Wisconsin where there were debates around whether the elections would be delayed. In fact, the governor tried to delay them unilaterally and the Wisconsin Supreme Court prevented it. So I remember correctly that there were, was it a primary in New York that's taken a long time to, to count the ballots? I mean, what, what can we learn from recent experience? What are the major pitfalls? Were stumbling blocks there, that, to mix metaphors, that we've learned from? Well, I'm hopeful that we will learn something from the primaries and also that we're in a slightly better position than we were. Arguably, the primaries, things happen quickly on the eve of elections. And you know, those last minute changes can be very devastating to polling places. A health official in Ohio saying, really, it isn't safe for people to go to the polls. Well, is the health official the person really to delay an election? No, but effectively, their decision causes other actors to have to figure out what to do. Do we have the election on the day? Do we allow more time for ballots to come in later? Do we go to a court and ask for some sort of remedy? I think that primaries, you know, there were some very messy times. One thing in the general election, which I think we have to keep in mind, which is it's much harder to imagine a delay in the election. I know we've talked about it a fair amount in the media, but for a couple of reasons. One, we do have a single day, we know it's coming, and it's set by federal law. And two, that the time for resolving elections is very tight on the federal side. In primaries, while it would have been nice to know who, whether Joe Biden had beaten Bernie Sanders by X amount, by a certain date, we were in a position where it wasn't urgent, where the time that the election in November happens, essentially we have about five weeks until some of the electoral college dates kick in and we want to resolve it. And you know, already many states, especially those who do a lot of voting by mail, take a long time to resolve these elections, 30 days or so. So I do think this issue of the election timeframe, we've got to stick to it, but there could be things that come up and pressures that will make election officials or other officials, governors, health officials, think about, is this the right thing to do? Could we find an extra time? Could we give an extension? Can we move a day or two? There might be some possibility for doing a little bit of that, but I I guess I want to stress how, how important it is that we actually keep to that election day because it will start to have cascading effects if we don't. You know, we're, we're all too accustomed now to election day, election night being complicated by federal judges who receive petitions from litigants and either, well, usually I suppose, keep the polling places open longer than originally scheduled. I'll say when I was in private practice many years ago, I helped write up memos, you know, state by state memos, thinking through what a challenge to 
different election circumstances would be in, in various states. But there, at least, the judges are waiting for lawsuits to be filed. They sort of take those things and, and then go with them. What you raised a moment ago, I suppose I hadn't thought of, which is that on election night, and in addition to those complications, we could have a variety of executive branch officials in the various states taking unilateral action to either affect the operations directly by law or just to make announcements that could significantly complicate the practical facts on the ground, could lead to more litigation or at the very least could lead to real confusion especially when polling workers and the public at large just haven't been prepared in advance for what those situations would look like and how to play them out. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's been some discussion about whether Donald Trump could delay the election. And, you know, I, I want to assure people that at least the term of the presidency is fixed. And so January 20th at noon, we'll, we'll have a new president, whoever that is. Mm-hmm. But even the date of that election is very difficult for him. And I think legally, we would say the president doesn't really have the ability to move that date. But he or other executive branch officials, those are the states, other officials, mentioned health officials, can do things that do complicate that. And that's essentially what we saw in many of the states in Ohio and Wisconsin, where there were competing actors, obviously, often separated by partisanship. One branch of the legislature being in the Republican hands, the health official maybe being in the other hands, makes it very difficult. So I, I do think that's something we, we need to watch out for, but I would caution that except for some small adjustments, I think it's very difficult to envision really moving that election where we did do so in the primaries. Yeah. And obviously, so much of the focus has been on President Trump and what he might attempt or what he might say. But this notion of local health officials, state health officials, either in total good faith or for political reasons, making announcements that could complicate things and maybe setting up conflicts between you know, CDC guidance and, and federal guidance on the one hand versus spur-of-the-moment announcements by, by local officials. I knew the election was going to be complicated enough, and now you've, you've really terrified me. So let's move on to another subject. If in-person voting is going to be complicated or maybe even feasible in many, many circumstances, the focus turns to advanced voting by mail. And I suppose this would work in either two ways. One is there's the current structure in every state and locality for just absentee voting. That structure is in place and it just could be relied on much more heavily than in the past. But I suppose are some states or localities trying to legislate broader structures for mail-in voting for this particular round of elections? Absolutely. And the change is happening. Even today, I think we've had some change. So just to back up a little bit, I mentioned the book I'd written earlier. I think we've been talking a lot about different kinds of voting by mail. And I don't think there's any one definition of what it means to be all universal mail and absentee. But there was an earlier paradigm that we had for for much of the 20th century, which was just a small number of people were voting absentee, maybe 5% or so in states. They often had to provide reasons. You had to be, say you were out of town on business or sick. State laws allowed that, but also required you to have a witness or, or a notary public. And that may seem quaint today. That was that was done at the time for reasons of security, really trying to protect the secret ballot that had been instituted in many states in the late 19th century and enshrined in state constitutions. That was the way that the people in in states were thinking about absentee ballot as an outlet for those who really needed it, trying to provide some protection. We moved to, on a state-by-state basis, some places that really had a different paradigm. Voting is a convenience. We We want everyone to be able to take advantage of this. California in 1978 opened absentee balloting to so-called no-excuse voting, so you didn't need a reason 
Oregon eventually became the first state to go 100% voting by mail. And where we stand today is just we have a real mishmash of states where some are very far down the curve, 100% voting by mail. And I've always been somebody who has some issues with voting by mail, but I will say those states that do a lot of it at least have thought it through and have systems in place and do some things professionally to mitigate some of the problems with it. And other states that are very traditional that don't do a lot of it. And the challenge here is if we're talking about very, very large change, some of those states are going to be able to handle that well and some maybe not so well. And it's a simple guide, but I think you might consider if you do a lot more of what you're doing now, that might be doable. But if you're looking to dramatically change the paradigm and what you're doing, I think there are some, some issues because there are a lot of interlocking things in the, in the election. You mentioned, I think indirectly, New York. New York's primary took a very, very long time to count these absentee ballots. In part, it's because they really weren't going to release any results from any of the absentees until they had them all set. And that's an admirable stance to have. But I think the reason they did that is because it's very tricky to set up a system that Oregon or Colorado has where they are processing lots of ballots. They know how they know that they can open some of them earlier. They process them before election day. It interacts with the voter registration system. You can't really open somebody's absentee ballot if you're going to let them show up at the polls at an early voting site unless you record it immediately and have live connection to the voter registration system. So a lot of these things are interlocking. We allow people to fix their absentee ballots. If there's a problem, officials often contact the voter and says, you didn't sign your, your envelope. We need to deal with that. Maybe that takes a longer time. All of these things can be very, very complicated. And I think we're certainly going to see more. I expect we'll probably see maybe north of 50% of people voting by mail. That's a huge jump from 25%, where we've only been seeing you know, an up of 4 or 5% a year. But I do think the states that are, that are moving dramatically to do more are likely to face some problems. I mentioned today, the state, New Jersey, has said, we're, we're going to mail absentee ballot applications out to everyone. That's a doable thing. Other states do it, but they haven't done that before. And does that mean, can you do it well if you don't have a clean voter registration role? Do you anticipate what you need after that? And so I think the change at our biggest election with the most people voting is not the best way to do things. But here we are, given the situation that we're going to have a number of states moving in that direction. Now, let's talk about just the problems that can occur even in the best of times in normal circumstances where mail-in voting is really just an adjunct to the majority of in-person voting under normal circumstances. What sorts of things can go wrong? I know a lot of focus has been on fraud. Is that a real problem? And if so, how is it guarded against? Well, again, I, I mentioned I have some caution about voting by mail, or at least large-scale voting by mail, and some of those relate to integrity issues. And I, you know, I think the president's statements sometimes I think are larger and more grandiose than are the case in terms of the scale of the problem. He's talking about millions of voters and problems. I don't think we have any evidence that there is large-scale voting by mail fraud, but I do think that there are some integrity issues. I mentioned the one earlier that we used to really care about protecting the secret ballot, and we do it at the polling place. Any vote-by-mail ballot, any ballot that leaves the polling place is potentially subject to you know, somebody you know having some power over you, your spouse, your union, your work, your church. And so those kinds of things are potentially out there. Are people pressuring people? Are they going to nursing homes? Again, I don't think that's a wide scale thing, but we certainly have some, some issues that it's hard to prevent. Issues about how the ballot gets back to the polling place. We've been talking about a new term, not a new term, but a term people use called ballot harvesting. It means someone 
often a party official or interested group is trying to help you get your ballot back to the polling place, back to the election official. You can see that as a good thing, a helpful to voters, a convenience, but you also might think that there's some room for regulation, right? That, that you might not want a single person to be bringing in 100 ballots. Maybe there should be a limit. Maybe you should sign and, and note that. And so there are states that are, that are arguing over those things as well. So I think there are those kinds of integrity issues. There also are issues about, do you get your ballot counted? You can make mistakes. You can essentially disenfranchise yourself by having not signing a ballot or not having the proper witnesses or on the inside of the ballot. At polling places, we have requirements for there being error checking. Somebody votes twice for a candidate, a machine that scans their ballot can tell you that and say, hey, go back and vote the ballot again. You might make that mistake. So there are those issues. And the last one I hinted at before is the time it takes to count ballots. I don't think that by itself, voting by mail causes a longer time to count ballots, but sometimes some of the decisions around it do. Give the example of the state of Colorado is one of the most progressive states in terms of what they do. They mail ballots, not applications, out to everyone. But 95% of the people cast one of those ballots that are mailed to them. They also can go to polling places. They can same-day register. They're kind of a model for most progressive states of what they're looking to do. On the other hand, they require that the ballot be handed in to the election official by election day rather than postmarked. And partly because of that and partly because of some other efficiencies, they are very good about turning their election results around quickly. They can certify elections in just a number of days. California, on the other hand, makes a lot of decisions that allows that process to go on much longer. The ballot needs to be postmarked. You have more time to cure your ballot. There are issues with provisional ballots. And so the California period for certifying election is over 30 days. And you know, that starts to really get close to the time in the Electoral College where you need to get the election done. And so I do think absentee ballots, not by themselves, but certainly related to them is the idea that you know, perhaps this period after election day will be messier. Because not only it could take longer, but I do think there are more the possibility of you and your colleagues, your lawyers getting involved. And if you have ballots sitting around in envelopes, in a sense, every one of them is a potential lawsuit because they can all be argued over. And as we saw in Bush v. Gore, you can push the deadlines and there can be a lot of chaos. And so you know, it's something I think we should conserve that we want to do election day and before as well as possible so that we can count as accurately as possible quickly and be better for all of us. One of the things that worries me and what you just laid out, I think really illustrates it, is that on the one hand, we should resist efforts by President Trump or others to just categorically delegitimize the notion of of mail-in voting. It's worked in some places, it can work, and this time we might need it to work. On the other hand, I also worry to a certain extent that by downplaying the practical challenges of mail-in voting, even setting aside allegations of fraud, just these challenges of the logistics and user error and the basic complications of creating this system so quickly, I worry that the proponents for widespread mail-in voting right now might inadvertently undermine the credibility of what happens, right? We have one side, President Trump, saying that it's all going to be illegitimate. We have another side saying, no, there's going to be no problems at all. And if there are problems, and there will be problems, because there's always problems to some extent, those who have downplayed it may find themselves having to quickly explain, well, there are problems, but they aren't problems that rise to a level of legitimacy. So what do you think, politically, rhetorically, is the right way for advocates for mail-in voting 
to frame what they're calling for now so as to calibrate the people's expectations properly? I think that the idea that voters are going to demand and election officials are going to want to provide that opportunity to voters is the core of the case, right? That that you do need to allow for more voting by mail. I think there has been some change early on. There were people calling for a wholesale change that we'd all go all vote by mail. And and I think the practicalities have set in. And so saying that you want to have the option of people to vote by mail, but giving, maybe not making the decision that you're going to extend the date by which a ballot can come to the election official or through last minute lawsuits of that. I think telling voters that there are other options, that they also need some attention, voting in person, voting early, and telling voters that they should be considering voting that absentee ballot even earlier than usual. The post office has become controversial, but there were some issues in the post office before this election with some longer delivery times. And states, typically responsible states, do not send out absentee ballots right on the eve of election day because they know that they're never going to get back. And so having some either legal, something in your legal code that says you need to have it in by a certain date or you don't get it mailed to you by a certain date, or just encouraging voters to say, don't take that chance, perhaps drop it off. There are some options, it varies by state, but also maybe vote that 10 days before the election rather than take the risk that your ballot might come in after the time because we are gonna see some ballots not counted or argued about in court, and it's better if your ballot is not. Well, I'm trying to calm the waters here, I do wanna add one bit of worry to you, and that is, look, we have some research that even before this election, we've been seeing more ballots counted later. Studies showed, you know, back 20 years ago, what the New York Times reported a couple of days after the election as the results, well, they were pretty close to the, the results, most of the votes. But over time, fewer and fewer of those ballots are really being reported early in these in- informal tallies. And as those votes come in, they tend to favor Democrats. There's a blue shift, as, as people have said. People who vote absentee, maybe provisional ballots, more urban centers, tend to be more democratic. And so there's no nefarious reason for this, but it, it is a fact. I think we're going to see an even greater shift this time, because if you look at people's attitudes towards voting by mail, Democrats are much more likely to say they're going to vote by mail than Republicans. And so we can have the situation where you have a lot of ballots out there, they're not counted, and it looks from the results that we have that Republicans are ahead by a certain amount, but we know that the ballots that are going to come in are going to go strongly in the Democratic direction. Again, I don't think there's anything necessarily legitimate about it, but it's not a good thing. And it'd be better if we had more ballots in sooner rather than exacerbating this worry that is going to, that is going to overhang a close election or a recount. One last question about logistics, and then we'll talk about what happens after Election Day. Are there any useful historical analogs that we can point to? Other times, other crises where we've had to grapple with something similar during an election? These days, everybody is, focuses back on the Spanish flu of 1918. And I suppose since it was an even numbered year, there were congressional elections that year. Are there useful lessons from history found there or in other more recent historic crises? Well, we do have a number of cases where we've done things on elections that really were impacted by a crisis. So the Civil War, the book that I wrote really goes back to that time. And that, that's actually a time where we instituted voting by mail in an interesting way. Most men were away from home. They were out in the field. And we found ways that we had all sorts of interesting state legislative debates, constitutional changes that allowed that sort of vote. And 
it eventually died out or, or went back to being normal after the Civil War and really didn't come back as a practice much until the early 20th century. But there was a, there was a huge change that had to be instituted to do that. I think in more recent days, we have things like 9-11. 9-11, there was an election. It wasn't a general election day, but it was a primary election. And many states don't have the best, most detailed plans for what to do if something is disrupted. And New York didn't have really anything and, and had to go to court and fashion a remedy. And you know, fortunately, again, it was a primary and there was some, some leeway as to when you, you could get it done. But they essentially had to stop the election and cancel it. Similarly, with, with hurricanes, we looked at Louisiana and in states like Florida, which actually does have a very good law for dealing with these things. You know, there are well thought out plans for you know, what if part of the state is hit by something that we have to deal with, but the rest of the state goes forward. So again, I'm not hopeful that we can pass new laws and have you know, great, great thought about what to do in a state by state basis. But I do think we are planning for logistics now and giving people options and telling them to vote earlier, I think is probably the, the best that we can do. But I also think that you know, even looking back to Bush v. Gore, where we were worried we couldn't get the election counted by the time we needed to, not a lot of states afterwards really worked on that. They didn't change their election codes to fix that. And not a lot of states really have put in their codes the thinking that you really need to deal with with uh, election crises. And so I do think that's something, as we guess this election, that states should really do. So let's turn our attention now to what happens after the people vote. And needless to say, I didn't choose that phrase at accident. That is the title of the book that our late colleague, Walter Burns, edited for years at AEI. You worked with him. You edited the third volume. And now the fourth volume is coming out soon. When's it coming out, John? Coming out in about six weeks. Great. Perfect timing. How should we think about what happens in this constitutional process after the people vote? How does it work and what, which parts of it are most at risk of being disrupted by COVID-19? Well, the first thing to remember is that we are essentially not voting for Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the election. We're really voting for some people who stand behind those candidates presidential electors. These are people who, in most states, you don't see their names on the ballot, but they are the people who are actually going to vote and cast the ballots in December that have the consequence of selecting the president. You do have about six weeks from the time that November election happens to to mid-December where those electors are going to have to vote. They vote in their state capitals. The votes eventually are then transmitted to Congress. Congress has to come in the new Congress will show up in, in early January. And on January 6th, they will open these ballots and count them. The vice president will preside over the process. And hopefully, if all is clear, there'll be a majority of electors for president and for vice president. And we'll have a vice president and president-elect. And then on January 20th at noon, we'll, we'll swear in either Donald Trump again, or we'll swear in Joe Biden as, as a new president. That's all straightforward in a sense, but you know, there's some pitfalls. And on the first point, if we are really worried about resolving an election, we can really push up against the date that those electors vote. In 2000, we saw the Supreme Court ultimately stop the counting in Florida, in part because we were close to that date or or a slightly earlier date, the safe harbor date six days earlier, where the court didn't feel that Florida could really fashion a recount that would meet their requirements by that time. And so it was done. We We were ready to say we had a winner. But again, with, with all the problems we're having, that's a potential problem. I add a couple of others. In 2000, we contemplated this. But if you go back to 1876, one of the most contentious elections, we, we really did push this process very far down the road. It is possible, one could imagine, 
that there are some disputes within a state as to who really won the state and which slate of electors is the legitimate one. In 1876, again, we had several states where one side had a slate of electors. Essentially, there were almost two governments of some states in the South coming back into the Union. And it's very hard to see how we resolve that. We didn't do very well in 1876. We went all the way up to near the inauguration day, which was then in March. But that's something to watch for. You know, another thought is, well, what happens if something bad happens during this period? The candidates die or, or we have some other election inability to resolve them. Well, you know, that's, that's something that gets very complicated depending on when the candidates die and who gets substituted. And then I guess one other final point is that the electors who vote on in December, we've sometimes talked about them not voting the way they're supposed to vote, being faithless electors. We've had a recent Supreme Court decision about this. It clarifies in one way, but complicates in another. But potentially, there might be some mischief or changes with the elector voting a certain way, which could throw the election in a different direction. And then finally, if for some reason nobody got a majority, there's another process, a complicated process where Congress votes on who the president will be if, if no one has a majority. So there's a lot going on after Election Day. And again, especially the delay is something we'd worry that COVID might affect. A few episodes ago, we had Derek Muller, a law professor from the University of Iowa. He came on to talk about the Supreme Court litigation. That was a fascinating, fascinating discussion because it really points our attention back to what it is that the Electoral College is actually there to do. We tend to think of it now as just kind of an algorithm, right? You feed in popular votes and you get out electoral votes on the other end. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. Maybe we'll get back to that in a moment. But I do want to tell our audience on this question about the 1876 election, they're interested in learning more about it. Then one of the places they could read up on it is William Rehnquist, I think, wrote a book on this, The Centennial Crisis. I think he wrote that book before Bush v. Gore, just as he wrote his book on impeachments before he presided over an impeachment. And he wrote his book on civil liberties in wartime before 9-11 and the post-9-11 litigation about detainees. Do you think the Supreme Court could get involved in any step in the electoral college process? I mean, it's one thing for the court to intervene, for the courts to intervene in counting up the people's votes. But what place is there, if any, for judicial review in this process within the electoral college, within the House and the Senate? Well, as you mentioned, I mean, obviously the the court might or numerous courts and different levels of courts may get involved in the, in the counting of the vote, and that can really push up against the deadline. So as we saw in Bush v. Gore. But the recent Supreme Court decision about the faithless electors, I think is an interesting one, but it potentially causes some problems. I don't know if the court would get involved again, but here's the issue. I think many people would worry, well, what if the election were very close to the Electoral College, but one of these electors decided to vote not the way they're supposed to vote? Their state voted for Donald Trump. They were selected on a slate, and there were, there were only one or two votes separating the two. And he switched his vote, and all of a sudden, it makes Joe Biden the president. Well, that's, that's the worry, and that's why the court, the court found that states, some states could, who are now limiting what those electors can do, effectively preventing them from casting a faithless elector, that that might be a good thing to prevent this problem. The way in which it could be a bad thing is if there are some other issues, like candidate dying. Well, what if a candidate dies? And you have electors who are now faced with the problem of, should I vote for this guy who won the election? I'm supposed to vote for him, but he's dead. What's Congress going to do with my vote? Or, you know, sometimes there might be some reason for wanting to have flexibility of negotiating or bargaining. Back in 1968, there was a worry about George Wallace, the third party candidate who did win 
number of votes in the Electoral College. Perhaps it would have been a situation where Humphrey and Nixon electors might have wanted to coalesce to keep George Wallace out of the possibility of going before Congress or, or causing some more mischief. So there, there are some reasons why the lack of flexibility might be problematic as well. So that's one area. The area I think people are most worried about that reminds of 2000 and 1876 is, again, there are two slates of electors from a state. And you can imagine this happening you know, back in Florida in 2000, where the initial count came out and the Secretary of State might have certified in one direction. And then courts came back and said, no, 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 we've got recounts. You've got you've to go a different direction. We've got to certify another slate. And then, then there are two slates of electors sitting there before Congress. And the process we have for trying to resolve that is very difficult. Who does the Constitution put in charge of picking between those two slates? I think it's Congress. But I think that that is the problem with that is that Congress is not always able to act without being... Congress can be divided and have to figure out how to act. So if the House were in one hand and the Senate were in the other hand, it becomes a very difficult question. If one party controls both houses, potentially they could entertain objections to certain slates of electors, not count one, say this is the right slate of electors, the other one is not the right slate, and resolve things. But in 1876, we essentially saw that division just come to a loggerhead. They had to appoint a commission. They almost didn't want to follow the the commission's results. It went by one vote to the Republicans. And they almost went all the way up to election day without having somebody there. And so while Congress is the body that would resolve that, some people think, well, maybe they're not going to do a good job of that. And maybe there should be some judicial action stepping in. I don't think it's the court's realm to do that. And I, I guess I do have some confidence that Congress, maybe in a very ugly way, would find a way to resolve that. But I do think it's primarily Congress's role to resolve it, although some would encourage there to be some sort of other arbiter to come in. Is it the Congress that's in office now, or is it the Congress that's elected on Election Day? Well, it used to be that it was the the lame duck Congress, the old, old Congress. And it's one of the reasons we passed the 20th Amendment. The 20th Amendment switches the order of when Congress and the presidency come in. So the new Congress comes in on January 3rd. The new president comes in on January 20th. The trick with that is that that some of the other deadlines are statutory. The dates that, for example, the the electors are counted or the Congress counts could be moved. So if a mischievous old Congress wanted to move the dates of counting and move it into the lame duck period, theoretically, they could. I think that would be against the spirit of the 20th Amendment, but it might be plausible that they could do that. But the simple answer is the new Congress, which reflects the new will of the people in in the November elections, is supposed to do the count. Now, when we talk about Congress, I suppose we have to keep in mind the president of the Senate, the vice president of the United States. One of the strange features of our system is that somebody who's on the ballot as the running mate for the the candidate for president, he finds himself in the process for the actual decision on the election. Maybe I'm misremembering this, but I, I seem to recall a strange sight of Vice President Al Gore being there in the Senate for the conclusion of the 2000 election that he lost. You're right. And you could also look to Richard Nixon in 1960, who lost the election and, and presided over his own the vote counting that went against him. And there even decided some controversies, not, not ones that would have changed the, the outcome, but the, there was a controversy about the Hawaii slate that he had to decide. And there is some question as to what role that vice president really has. I think it's more ministerial, but some would give him perhaps a little more power than that. But he does preside over it. I suppose the, the good thing about that is that we did have gracious losers at that point, that they, they didn't try to cause trouble in that role. But if your mind is 
going in bad directions, maybe you'd, you'd imagine that they would try to cause some trouble. It's funny that we can sit here and say, oh, the good old days of the 2000 election when things were, politics was so much simpler. Okay, let's finish by taking a step back from all of this. A couple of things you said earlier really kind of struck me and they're related. One, as you said, that it was decades ago that there was a, a real uptick in this move to mail, mail-in voting. You also pointed out that you know, long before that, we seemed to almost bristle at the idea of mail-in voting, that it was very hard to do this. You had to have, have your, your vote attested to. And you mentioned that this was for purposes of security, but I suppose it also just helped to reinforce this basic idea that the election is something we all do together at basically the same time in basically the same kinds of places, that it was this national moment where, in addition to the four main institutions of government, the presidency, the House, the Senate, the Supreme Court, and then a fifth being the Electoral College, the people almost acted institutionally in going about this work collectively under more or less the same circumstances at more or less the same time. And now the election is something that happens over the course of months. Some people will be casting votes before the first presidential debate. This is a very vague question, but I'd be curious your thoughts on it. How have these procedural changes changed the way that we, the American people, think about elections themselves or think about democracy itself? Yeah, I I think you're right. I think you're pointing towards a a good that was in the older system, that there was more of a, a civic day and I've been in favor of voting early, but I've also been in favor of limiting that period and maybe creating a 10-day period. But you can, you can see how voting is very spread out. It is true that most people, even with a long period, are casting their votes closer to election day. But it is causing campaigns to think about how they interact with voters, when to go negative, when to use resources to get people to the polls, looking at each state and, and trying to, to gain the advantage of what the, what the system allows. So I do think there was some value in having something close to the election, having more full information. Of course, there's always something that can happen very close to the election, but the debates are one thing that sticks in my mind. If we, if we are, you know, I think we have enshrined the debates in a, in a good way with the Commission on Presidential Debates that they're going to happen. They didn't always used to happen. And those are key moments for voters to really come together. The number of people who watch the debates is, is enormous. And so these are somewhat common civic moments. And so I do think the, the spreading out of the voting is causing some movement away from that. Look, convenience is important. People want that in lots of ways. I think these are competing values. I think we could probably find some way to give some convenience. But I do think that there is a value in what you're saying, that having a more, more of a sense that this is a day or at least a short period of time where people come together, maybe even see their neighbors and people at polling places, but certainly come together as one people and exercise their judgment. Yeah, voting is a right, of course. And so we want to facilitate people's exercise of that right. On the other hand, there's also something to be said for thinking of it not the same as jury duty, but sort of equivalent, right? If juries heard cases remotely and not, you know, sort of voted on their own, individual jurors voted on their own, something would be lost. It changes the way people think about the task at hand. And I I wouldn't say that the move to greater mail-in voting, that it's costs outweigh its benefits. But looking ahead at a future where maybe we get out our smartphones, you know, at some point in in the months of September and November and open up our vote app and push a big green button for a candidate and then go back to finishing our, you know, checking out at the grocery store, it would change the way we think about what it is that we're doing and how. Maybe that's overstated. 
there's debates about the Electoral College, whether to keep it, whether it's time to get rid of it, either get rid of it through constitutional amendment or sort of get rid of it in effect through a state-by-state move to coordinating the state's electoral votes with the national popular vote. Do you have any thoughts on, on that or on the state of the debate in general? Yeah, look, I'm generally a supporter of the Electoral College. I will note in the new edition of After the People Vote, your colleague, Carlin Bowman, former colleague of mine, who's really one of the experts on public opinion, has a new chapter which looks at really very comprehensively the polling that's been done on the Electoral College. And I will say, even though you know, I'm generally in favor of it, the polling generally has been against it. For a very long time, the American people have said, look, you know, all things being equal, we probably go with a popular vote. I do think, though, that the movement to do so has not been overwhelming. I think people feel that as a kind of reflexive, natural feeling that most elections are about the majority winning. And so they're, they're used to that. And I also think that once we have elections like 2000 and 2016, where the popular vote electoral college go in the other direction, you have partisan feelings about that, <laughs> that, that, that come into the polls. But I do think the electoral college still serves some purposes. One purpose, which we, we often forget, is that we're not really only one nation. We're a nation, but we're also a nation of states. And it's not a states' rights type of institution, but it is the case that we express ourselves through our states when we vote in an election. We don't have any congressional elections or congressional districts that go across state lines. You're voting for the representatives from your state and the senators from your state. And the same for president, as much as people don't think of it that way. You are voting through your state processes. Again, very different processes for voting in each state. Some of that is consistent with the Electoral College. So I think that's, that's one aspect. Again, I don't know that that's shared by everyone, but that we are a system, a federal system, where states at least have an important role in the communities of people and the political communities within a state are, are important things. The other issues with the Electoral College are that there would be some problems with the national popular vote, both both this new initiative you mentioned, which is kind of a hybrid vote initiative, or through a popular vote straight up. I mean, you certainly have some issues if you had a close election and recounting the vote. Anytime you have these close elections, there is controversy. And, you know, moving there would, would cause us probably to drop a lot of other things that we, many people cherish. If Oregon wants to vote 100% by mail and Massachusetts doesn't, well, we might need to make that much more uniform. We might need to run things a more top-down way. We might need to have our, our whole system uprooted. And so I, I think for that reason, it's also something that reflects the way our country was built, that we have a federal government, but we also have these state governments and state political cultures, which are important. This isn't the first time we've, we've debated, not you and I, but the nation as a whole is to have debated the Electoral College. We came very close to a constitutional amendment about 50 years ago. I want to say as a native Iowan, I want everything in electoral process to stay exactly how it is from the first caucus to the small states having an advantage in the electoral college. I want to change nothing. I'd encourage our audience to go back to a recent issue of National Affairs where Christopher DeMuth wrote about the work of Michael Yulman, who was then a a congressional staffer. He went on to become a, a Reagan administration lawyer and a fellow at the Claremont Institute. And the work that he did to really preserve respect for the Electoral College within Congress by calling attention to the merits of the Electoral College's role as a moderating influence in our electoral process. And of course, that's the subject of Federalist 68, where Alexander Hamilton explains the value of having the Electoral College, the role it will serve in in moderating and calibrating the selection of our president. 
The challenge, as I see it, is that these are institutional arguments for an institution that doesn't really operate as an institution, right? Like I said earlier, electoral college for us is more or less an algorithm. Popular vote goes in, electoral votes go out. And I mean, there was never really an idyllic time for the electoral college as an institution. Things were breaking down as early as, as 1800, I suppose, the first really contested presidential election. But it seems to me it's hard to defend an institution when the institution itself exists and operates almost as an abstraction. And we're making arguments for its merits. And maybe it was easy to sustain that when the Electoral College just aligned with the popular vote almost always, except for, I suppose, 1876. But now that it's becoming a regular feature of our politics since about 2000, that you can win the presidency without winning the popular vote overall. And that that trend has advantaged the Republican candidates in the way that it just hasn't advantaged the Democrats. I certainly hope we find a way to sustain the Electoral College as an institution for all the reasons that you and Alexander Hamilton and Michael Yulman and others have elaborated. I'm just very increasingly worried that it's sustainable in practice. Is there anything you can say to make me feel better about this? Well, I share your concern. I mean, the recent Supreme Court decision, I think, on, on faithless electors was consistent with, with your worry. These electors are, court has said before, they're not officers, but they are something, right? They're official people. They have a position. And yet the court was willing to sort of treat them as a pass-through. They really only show up one day. They do one thing. And, and maybe we could control them so that they don't have any agency. So, you know, I, I do think that that is a concern. I mean, certainly our other institutions are under threat, too, even those are more developed and people are, are happy with them. So I do think if the election continues to go in one direction, popular vote being for Democrats and the Electoral College being for Republicans, that's very dangerous to the Electoral College. You know, I do think that ultimately probably will be the end of it if it continues. You know, we have seen shifts in our politics, and I guess I expect probably we're not going to always see that trend. What we see is likely to happen in four to eight years often takes another turn. So maybe that, that we're saved by that. But look, if it were consistently against the ethos of democracy, of the majority ruling, I think it would be in trouble. But I, you know, I think it has served a purpose. And I, I do think our states, the fact that we have states, still something that people maybe need to be reminded of, but is important to them. But I agree with you, if we're going to do this regularly, that institution is in trouble. Now, longtime listeners are familiar with our producer, Tal Fortgang. Alas, Tal is now off to law school, but we're very lucky to have now producing the show, Elaine Allen. Elaine, do you have any questions before we finish up? Yeah, I was going to ask, you mentioned that one of the right-wing talking points about the upcoming election is that there's going to be widespread voter fraud. And I think that the left-wing talking point is concerns about voter suppression. Could you talk about whether that's a legitimate concern or to what degree it might be a concern? Well, look, I, I think one can recognize that there are elements of election integrity and voter suppression out there. But I, again, I actually think that neither is something that is widespread. It certainly depends on how you define it. If you define voter suppression as any electoral practice, which might dampen turnout to some extent, whether it was intended or not, whether we could have a better system or not, you could find more. But I think while we've certainly had you know, significant issues in the past, I think our elections are, are pretty above board and run pretty well. They have problems mostly because of administrative issues and the intersecting of different bodies with, with different procedures and, and different partisan takes on these. But I guess I'm, I'm not one who thinks that the election is dominated by either voter fraud or voter suppression. 
But I think there are a lot of issues we could work on, and I think we should, especially after this election. John, again, I want to remind our audience that, that they should look for the forthcoming edition of, of your book, After the People Vote. We'll look forward to that. Just one last question when we go. When you started on that project many, many years ago at AEI, you did it in conjunction with Walter Burns. I want to have you back sometime to talk about Walter's life and legacy in general. Our audience, if they're not already familiar with Walter Burns, he left behind a, a rich legacy of work at AEI and elsewhere in studying democracy, both in its substance and in its processes. We name our annual Constitutional Day lecture after Walter Burns, in fact. I hate to ask you to put words in Walter's mouth, but looking ahead to the challenges that we might face in this upcoming election season, how do you think Walter would think through these issues? What would he say about the times we're going through? Well, look, I think Walter was both a great student of our institutions, but also a great patriot. In fact, wrote about that. He was a lover of institutions. And our institutions are under some strain, but I, I think that Walter would think that they were ultimately pretty well built and that there would be ways to fix them or to amend them rather than to think that our system is illegitimate. So much more to say about Walter, who was you know, a great scholar, a great person at AEI, who brought a lot of good to, to this world. But I think you know, mostly Walter really loved America and loved American institutions and I think would think that these institutions will make it through these troubled times. Well, we'll have much more to say about Walter Burns in episodes to come later in this series. And I hope we'll have you back then. But in the meantime, John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Adam. And thanks to our audience as always for tuning in to Unprecedential. Please join us again next time.